So pretty much like every Christian loves to hear and sing about God's salvation. We love that, right? We love singing and hearing about the salvation of the Lord. But what many Christians ignore or maybe just really haven't fully grasped is that God's salvation is always paired with God's judgment. They always go together. It's always the case. And God makes this explicitly clear in today's text. So if you're new with us, uh, we just started this new sermon series where we're going verse by verse through the book of Exodus. And the text we're going to look at, look at today, God is very explicit about this. That salvation is paired with judgment. And here's what he says in today's text. He says, I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my people, the Israelites. See that? Not with mighty miracles, not with mighty words, but with mighty acts of judgment. Mighty acts of judgment. So it's not that God is saving his people and judging Egypt. Okay? Nope. It's that God is saving his people by judging Egypt. Okay? So that's the big idea for us this morning. That salvation and judgment cannot be separated from one another, but they fit together hand in glove. Salvation and judgment. Now, with that said, I know that a lot of modern folks don't like that. <laughs> we don't like to talk about judgment. We don't like that. We're cool with the whole grace thing. Cool with the whole mercy thing. That sounds neat. Like that part. But ooh, ooh, that whole judgment thing doesn't sound good. Can we leave the judgment thing out? Well, no. Can't leave it out. And as we'll see in just a second, the reason we can't leave it out is because it's always paired with salvation. Always. From Genesis to Revelation, this is how God does it. So, this idea may bother you. It may bother you at first. The judgment is always paired with salvation. But I think, I think if we'll look a little further into this, that it will actually give you a great amount of rest and peace. I think so. So let's dive in, shall we? Let's look at it. Today begins the story of the plagues of Egypt, the very famous plagues of Egypt. Today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 6. We're going to start with verse 28, and then we'll go through chapter 7, verse 7. Uh, and if you don't have your Bible with you, it's not a big deal. The verses will be on the screen behind me. So we're going to start with Exodus 6 and verse 28. Verse 28. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt." 
and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's word. All right, so if you've been with us for any amount of time so far in this sermon series, you will already know, <laughs> you'll already know that the book of Exodus is filled with violence. It is filled with bloodshed. It's filled with judgment. But why is that the case? Like, why is that? Why so much violence? Couldn't God have found a more diplomatic way to rescue his people? In fact, after last week's sermon, one of you guys called me and asked me that very question. <laughs> and hey, it's a great question. She called me and she said, hey, now wait a second. Why couldn't God have gone about this in a more peaceful manner? <laughs> right? Like, why all the violence? This is wild, right? Hey, that's a great question. Why couldn't God save his people without so much judgment? Why not? Hey, these are tough questions. I was on the phone with her for an hour, okay? It's a tough question. It's got some, some tough answers. And so here's what I want to say right off the bat. Right off the bat, whether you're a Christian here today or whether you're a skeptic of Christianity here today, and you struggle with these kinds of questions, you struggle with the God of Exodus, I just want to say to you right here off the bat, it's okay. It's okay to struggle with this, all right? It's fine. It's okay if these stories make you uncomfortable, all right? They make me a little uncomfortable. I'll be real. <laughs> all right, so it's fine. Uh, you know, what's funny is that the many, many Bible characters themselves, including Moses, are uncomfortable with the God that they encounter. Moses is uncomfortable. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you've seen that. Moses is not like super excited about this God or his plans. He's not. So if this bothers you today, you're in good company. It bothers Moses, <laughs> okay? It bothers Moses, it bothers a lot of people. And so, hey, it's fine. If you struggle with this, no big deal. But in saying that, I want to issue you a warning, a warning. If, if you're uncomfortable with this, fine, but don't let your discomfort with this story be the factor that determines whether you believe it to be true or not, okay? Don't let your discomfort be the factor that determines whether you think this is true or not. Why do I say that? Well, you already believe all sorts of things in this life that make you uncomfortable. You already believe that, like all kinds of things. You believe are true, and those true things make you uncomfortable. <laughs> you already believe that. It is true that Uncle Sam wants your taxes. It's true. There is a tax man, and he's coming for them. That makes me personally uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't like that fact. But it is true. 
<laughs> it is true. They're coming for my tax money. They are. All right. It just is the case. Does it bother me? Yeah, that bothers me. Uh, but you know what? It's still true. <laughs> and so here's the deal. True things are true. Period. True things are true whether you like them or not. True things are true whether they make you comfortable or uncomfortable. Okay? And so don't let your discomfort sway you to believe that this must not be true, that Yahweh must not exist because I don't like this. Well, you already believe all kinds of things that you don't like. All right? Uh, and lastly, let me be super duper clear here right off the bat. Super, super clear. I have no intention of defending the God of the Bible here this morning. I have no intention of doing that. And I will not do that. Uh, he doesn't need me to defend him. Okay? That's not my job. And frankly, just to be frank, I'm like really sick and tired of Christians constantly trying to get God off the hook for who he is and what he does and what he says. Like I'm like super tired of that. And so I'm not going to do that. I'm not trying to get God off the hook. The Bible itself makes no effort to get God off the hook. And so I'm not going to either. <laughs> Here today, I'm just going to let the text speak for itself. I'm not going to yeah, but the text. We're just going to let it speak. Okay. I'm not going to defend Yahweh here this morning. Okay. So let's first answer this question. Yahweh's coming to judge. Okay. That's clear. But who? Who is he coming to judge? Who is his judgment against? We know that God is going to save his people through judgment. But who is he judging? Pharaoh? The people of Egypt? Well, yes. Kind of. Partially. That's true. He is going to judge Pharaoh. And he is going to judge the people of Egypt. But not primarily. That's not primarily who God is going to be judging. Who is he going to be judging? Well, he actually explicitly tells us in Exodus 12, 12. He tells us. He says this. He says, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Exodus 12, 12. So, the primary objects of Yahweh's judgments are the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt. Therefore, this is ultimately a spiritual judgment against idols. That's what this is. A spiritual judgment against idols. Now, what makes this point pretty clear uh, is to see that these plagues that we're going to go through over the next several weeks... These very famous plagues, they're not random. Although they kind of seem weird and random, they're not. Okay? They're not random. You know, the elements of the plagues, if you know the story at all, you know there's the plague with the frogs, the plague with the flies, there's the plague with the livestock, the plague where the Nile River turns to blood, uh, there's plagues of weather, etc., etc. Okay? And these elements are not random. These elements mirror the prominent Egyptian deities. Okay? And so Dr. Douglas Stewart, in his commentary on Exodus, he writes this. Uh, Dr. Stewart says, quote, 
God turned things believed to be the specialty of the gods of Egypt against them. See? And showed himself in control of all events and powers. End quote. Okay, so through the plagues, Yahweh is proving his power. Not only over nature, but over the parts of nature that were understood to be controlled by the Egyptian gods. Right? So they, the Egyptians believed that a certain god controlled the Nile River. And Yahweh says, uh-uh, uh-uh. No, no, no. I control the Nile River. I control the animals. I control the bugs. I control the weather. I control it all. That is the point that Yahweh is making. He is revealing these Egyptian idols to be powerless. Okay? That's what he's doing with these plagues. But of course, that leads us naturally to another question. And that question is this. Why would Yahweh go through so much extravagant trouble to dismantle the power of make-believe gods? Right? I mean, it's kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, these gods aren't real. <laughs> They're not real. There is no God of the Nile. There is no God of the weather. They actually don't exist. They don't exist. So this seems like a heck of a lot of trouble for Yahweh to go through here. Putting on these extravagant displays all to take down make-believe gods. This is like Yahweh coming to take down Santa Claus. Right? Like it's weird. <laughs> Why go through all this trouble, Yahweh? Why even bother? They're not real. Well, the answer to that question is this. It's actually pretty obvious when you think about it. Here's the answer. Every idol in the world, every little G God, even if they're make-believe, every one of them is a slave master. Everyone. Everyone. You see, slavery is a natural consequence of idolatry, whether it's an idol that you made up in your head or not. You are a slave to that idol. You are. And so what Yahweh is doing is he is showing that the Israelites are not the only slaves in this story. Oh no, the Egyptians are slaves too. They are slaves to their make-believe gods, to their idols. You see, their false, invented gods are not harmless just because they're make-believe. They're not. They're not. They put the Egyptians in chains. And you know what? The idols that you and I worship today, they're not harmless either. <laughs> no. Idolatry puts us all in bondage. Now, what is an idol exactly? Let's define our terms so we understand what we're saying here. What is an idol? Well, one modern theologian defines idolatry this way. He says, quote, an idol is anything more important to you 
than God. Anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. End quote. Okay? So if you have a that in your life, you know, fill in the blank. If you have a that, something that is more valuable to you than God, well, that is your idol. That's your idol. Now, it could be literally anything. <laughs> it could be anything or a combination of a lot of things, right? It could be your spouse, your children, your social status, your good looks, your talents, your car, your house, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your intelligence, your career, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All right? It could be all kinds of different things. It's just literally anything that is giving your life more value than God is. So it could be anything. If your kids give you more value than God does, well, guess what? They're your idols. Okay? Just as simple as that. And this same theologian, he goes on to say, quote, idolatry inevitably leads to slavery. End quote. It's inevitable. It's just inevitable. If you have an idol, it will enslave you. Now, why is that? Why is that? Because we always end up serving the thing that gives our life the most value. I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? <laughs> We're going to serve the thing that gives our life the most value. So if our children give our lives the most value, we will, we will bow down to all of their needs and their desires and their wants. And we'll do absolutely anything for them. I mean, all kind of wild things, unspeakable things for our idols, because they are what's giving us value. <laughs> so we must serve them. We will serve them at all costs. And therefore, friends, we all have our masters. We all have our idols. I know that I do. So, how are we to be free? How are we to be free of our idolatry? Well, if we're going to be free, then the bondage of our false gods must be broken. The bondage must be broken. Our chains must be broken. Our idols must be destroyed. And that... That is why God saves through judgment. That's why he does that. He is far too loving to deliver us through any other means. No, no, no. See, if he does it through any other means, then our chains remain. No, he must judge our idols. He must destroy our idols. He must break the necks of our oppressors. And that's exactly what he does here in Exodus through the plagues of Egypt. It's exactly what he does. He breaks the necks, literally, <laughs> of Israel's oppressors. 
And yet, we will still balk against that. <laughs> still, still balk against that. You see, it's very easy for us modern-day Americans to wag our fingers at the God of Exodus and say, how dare you, you perpetrator of violence and bloodshed against the innocent people of Egypt. I told you all last week, I, we actually had a, a, a skeptic, a couple of skeptics join us several months ago, uh, and they kind of cornered me after the service, uh, and they, had, they wanted to roll out like multiple objections to Christianity that they had. <laughs> uh, and so uh, the corner of me over here, and they're like sort of rolling out these objections that they had. And you know what their main objection was? The first one? The first one was they had a big problem with the God of Exodus. Now, we weren't even in the Exodus series yet. We were still in the Mark series. And I was like, hey, 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 y'all need to stick around. <laughs> y'all need to stick around because we're actually about to get to Exodus. So if you have a big problem with the God of Exodus, you're in luck. And they have come a few times after that. It's pretty neat. Uh, but this was their main objection. They thought it was incredibly wicked what Yahweh did here to the people of Egypt. To these, well, I'll use their words, these innocent people. of Egypt, Bringing the plagues down on them. They just couldn't stand for that. And look, they're not the only ones. I mean, even Christians have some, some reservations about, about this too, okay? And so, hey, look. I get it. But here's what I want to say to that. I want to say to you, if you're in the same boat, if you're having an issue with this. The reason we rush in to defend the people of Egypt is because we are exactly like them. Exactly like them. We are them. <laughs> we are them. Because of our own idolatry, we oppress those around us, just as the Egyptians do. One scholar says this, quote, When our beloved idols are threatened, <laughs> we will do virtually anything, all kinds of evils, in order to protect them. End quote. We'll hurt whoever we got to hurt to keep our idol in place, to keep our idol in power. We'll do all kinds of things we never anticipated that we would or could do. But we do them because our idols are so important. We love them. They're very, very important to us. And we'll do all kinds of evils to our fellow man to protect them. And so, when we feel sorry for the Egyptians, when we feel empathy for them, it shows how little we know about ourselves and how little we really know about the Egyptians. <laughs> Do you see any of the Egyptians rising up against Pharaoh? See that? Do you see any Egyptian rising up, coming to Pharaoh and saying, well, now wait a minute, Mr. Pharaoh. These Israelites are people too. You need to let them go. They have rights, you know, Pharaoh. They have rights. Do you see any Egyptian doing that? Hmm. No, you don't. No, you don't. 
Why? Why is no Egyptian doing this, standing up for this injustice? Because this is the wealthiest nation on the earth at this time. Like beyond wealthy and prosperous, this Egyptian nation. It's beyond prosperous. And you know what? The prosperous life that they enjoy has been built entirely off the backs of slaves. It's built entirely on their backs. So, if setting Israel free means I lose all my wealth and comforts, well... And why don't we make those chains a little tighter there, Pharaoh? <laughs> Shall we? Let's make sure these people don't get out of these chains. Let's keep them tight, tight, tight. And so, hey, you know what? And this is what I told that couple over here in the corner. <laughs> I explained this to them, and I said, you know what? Let's just kind of drop all this innocent Egyptian talk. <laughs> there are no innocent Egyptians. They are all as complicit in this slavery and injustice as Pharaoh. Not a single one of them has stood up to defend the Israelites. Not even one. So let's just drop that objection. Let's throw that one in the garbage. There are some other objections. Fine, we'll go over those. But hey, let's go ahead and drop this one. <laughs> These people are just as complicit as Pharaoh. You see, their entire society flourished entirely on the backs of the Israelites. So that's a problem. And of course, the other big problem is that they are overt idolaters. Overt idolaters. They have rejected Israel's God, overtly rejected Him, and then replaced Him with they're make-believe gods. Just like you and me. Mm -hmm. They've openly rejected Yahweh. And instead they're worshiping their own gods. So, God must deliver Israel through the judgment of Egypt and their gods. That's how He must do it. But, I know still one objection remains. I know, I know it. One objection remains. And they brought this up too. It's a good one. <laughs> it's a good objection, okay? Here's what they said. They said, but what about the Egyptian animals and babies? You see, God brought the plagues down on them too. Our text literally said that. God brings his judgment down on animals and babies. And isn't God a tyrant for doing that? Isn't he a tyrant? You see, people, they take so much offense to God's judgment against animals and children because animals and children are so innocent. They're so innocent. This is why you and I are bothered today. In today's society, when we see children being abused, that bothers us to our core. Why? 
Why does it bother us so badly when we see children being mistreated? Because they're so innocent. They're so innocent. It hurts. It hurts us badly. It shakes us when we see that. And so this is just what, what's happening here in Exodus. It seems that God is punishing the innocent animals and the innocent babies. I mean, the animals didn't enslave the Israelites. The babies didn't enslave the Israelites. They're not complicit in this. So why did they have to take the punishment? But here's the issue. Here's my answer to that objection. Animals and babies are really not the truly innocent parties in this story. I know that you, th you think that they are, but they're really not. There's actually only one innocent party in this book. Just one. One truly pure and innocent party. And that is Yahweh. Yahweh is the only truly pure and innocent party. And you don't believe me. You have a hard time with that. I get it. <laughs> you have a hard time with it. People don't like to hear that. What do you mean God is pure? God is innocent. No, no, no. The animals are innocent. No, no, no. The babies, they're the innocent, pure ones. And here's why the average person is bothered by what I just said. When I say that Yahweh is the only innocent party. They're bothered because they don't see God at all that way. In the book of Exodus, for example, what seems to stand at the forefront of the narrative is God's power, His strength, His might. I mean, it is a power narrative. <laughs> That's what it is. It's the God of Israel versus the gods of Egypt. It's pretty much what the book is. Okay? And it's the same type of narrative and the same type of God that seems to be running throughout the entire Old Testament. The God of might and power. And so when the average person thinks about God, this is the primary characteristic they ascribe to him. His power and might. But is that really all there is to God? Just power? No. God is so, so much more than power. And God's purity and His innocence, in fact, are right here in Exodus. And His purity and innocence run all throughout the Old Testament. The problem is, his innocence is obscured by the radiance of his power and glory and might. See? His radiance is too bright and too hot to notice anything else. We don't notice anything else about him. And so we don't see how pure and innocent he really is. So how can I prove it to you? How can I show you just how innocent God is? How are we to really wrap our heads around God's absolute purity and innocence? Well, 
We can't. <laughs> we can't wrap our heads around that. So what would have to happen is God himself would have to help us. He would have to help us see his purity and innocence. And what if I told you he did exactly that? He did help us. What if I told you that Yahweh intentionally cupped his hand over his own radiance? What if I told you that Yahweh disrobed himself entirely of his majesty and stepped down off his throne in order to become one human cell inside the womb of a virgin? What if I told you that Yahweh traded heaven's throne room for Bethlehem's cattle shed? What if I told you that the great I Am emptied Himself and was born in the likeness of men? And what if I told you that the Alpha and the Omega Himself became a slave? He himself became a slave. He himself took our chains, our burdens, our yoke onto himself. What if I told you that Yahweh humbled himself and himself became an obedient son? Obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. What if I told you that the great and terrifying lion of Judah would come to us as a lamb, a spotless lamb, full of gentleness, innocence, and purity? What if I told you that the God of Israel who hates and curses injustice and idolatry, became the curse for us. Are you seeing the innocence of Yahweh? You see, my friends, just as Israel was saved through judgment, you and I were saved through judgment too. But with us, God did not come to dole out judgment on us. No. He came instead to bear our judgment for us in our place on the cross. You see, friends, it is at the cross. It's at the cross of Christ that we see the innocence and the purity of Yahweh. Because at the cross we see the true ugliness of idolatry. We see the results of our idolatry. And what is the result? The result is the crucifixion and suffering of God's only pure and innocent 
son. That's the result of all idolatry. It's the death of Jesus. At the cross, we see innocence incarnated. Innocence incarnated, being assaulted. Being assaulted by what? Our idolatry. <laughs> Our sin. We see the weight of every one of our idolatrous sins pressed down upon him. We see him writhe under the curse of it all. And we see him die under the shame of it all. But right there, right there in that death, at the moment we finally grasp the magnitude of his infinite purity, and innocence. It's ironically at that moment that he displays the true fullness of his power. You see, anyone, anyone can take up a sword against their enemies. Anyone and everyone does that. It's easy to do that. But what takes true power is to be willingly struck down by the sword of your enemies so that you can save them. That's true power. Oh, and also, ironically, by allowing himself to be defeated by sin and death, Jesus conquered sin and death. <laughs> and so in history's greatest display of love, power, and irony... Jesus Christ took all the punishment that we deserve so that we can get all the blessings he deserves <laughs> so that we can be free. We can be free. Free from sin, free from idols, free from death and hell. We're free. And so you're asking, well, wait a minute, I don't feel free though. <laughs> These idols seem really powerful. How can I be free of them? Here's how. You run and you run as hard as you can to the foot of the cross. You run to the foot of the cross and at the foot of Jesus' cross you remember. <laughs> you remember that you already are free. <laughs> you already are free. You see that your champion has already broken the necks of your oppressors. They're dead. <laughs> You're worshiping dead idols. They're dead. <laughs> they have no power over you. They have no authority over you. You are giving dead idols authority over you. You're letting dead idols have a say in your life. So we run to the cross. And we see our champion conquering every idol. We see him breaking the necks of our oppressors, and we remember, oh yeah, they're dead. <laughs> they're dead. He has dismantled the power of every false god. So, your fight, therefore, against your idols is not a battle to triumph over them. No. Instead, it's a battle to believe that they've already been defeated. 
They've already been defeated. That's the battle. The battle is to believe. To believe that what I'm saying is true. (laughs) And I would argue that that actually is a more difficult fight. The fight to believe. The fight to rest. The fight for faith. That's harder because they seem so real. It seems so powerful. They seem to have so much authority over us. So this is hard. (laughs) It's hard to believe that we're listening to dead gods. It's hard. And so, that is why we come here week after week after week. And we preach the gospel and we preach the gospel and we preach the gospel. That's why I put it up on the board over here. I lead the youth on Wednesday nights. They call this their cheat sheet. Don't y'all. That's what y'all call it. Y'all, you, they're like, you put a cheat sheet on the board. Yes, I did. I put a cheat sheet on the board. We have to see the gospel, hear the gospel, preach the gospel, sing the gospel week after week after week after week. Because you know what creates belief? You know what creates rest? Do you know what creates faith? The Apostle Paul told us. It's on the board. The gospel itself creates faith and rest. I mean, the, the Apostle Paul could not have been clearer. <laughs> he said this. He says, faith comes from hearing. From hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Jesus. The gospel is what creates the belief that our king, our champion, has conquered. He's conquered for us so that we can rest in his victory.